Welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. We're dispensing stories of success from across the continuum of care. I'm your host, Hillary Blackburn. Thanks for joining us to learn from leaders throughout the pharmacy industry. Hey listeners, in this episode, I join fellow podcaster Tony Guerra of the Pharmacy Residency Podcast, and he interviews me about some things about leadership and how do you show that on your residency applications. I hope you enjoy. And if you're looking for other resources to help you get ready for the residency process, then check out my free course available over at Residency Bootcamp. Dot teachable.com where I have a residency boot camp ready for you to learn more. But before we get into the episode, I want to remind you that my book is now available on Amazon. Go check out how pharmacists lead answers from women who are leading, succeeding, and impacting pharmacy. It's a great book dedicated to women in pharmacy leadership. Uh, today I have Hillary Blackburn on, who has been uh, a guest on the show before, and uh, I don't think she's had her MBA now, but she is now PharmD MBA, and and certainly has a lot of leadership experience. But what I really wanted to ask her were, as we are making our applications for residency in the fall, uh, and these letter of intent and, and application deadlines are coming, how do you put in leadership? So the questions I keep getting are one. I don't have a presidential or vice presidential leadership responsibility. How do I still show that I'm a leader because I have led? Or I get the opposite question, which is, how do I show that I'm president of a club without being boastful or a braggart? And I'm generally an introvert, so it's even uncomfortable for me to really present the best that I've done, but I have done all this hard work. So we're going to get into it with uh, Hillary and talk about this. So Hillary, welcome to the Pharmacy Residency Podcast. Hey, Tony. Thanks for having me. Great to talk about this topic. Okay. Well, first, um, instead of going back and telling us your trip through pharmacy school, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your trip to pharmacy residency because I think you did a traditional hospital residency, but then ended up kind of creating your own job and creating a non-traditional role. So can you tell us about your residency application journey? Yeah. So, uh, you know, finishing my last year of pharmacy school, which was all rotations, um, I knew that I wanted to do a residency and get that extra year of clinical skills and and honing in on those with um, experienced pharmacists to kind of have that extra year. And residencies were becoming so much more popular and they have just grown in that um, popularity and really requirements for getting those um, key positions in hospitals and and other uh, places. So um, when I applied, I had narrowed it down to um, a traditional PGY-1 that included both the hospital and some ambulatory um, opportunities. And then I decided to start looking at cities and key programs that I wanted to look at. And so I am from the Southeast. I grew up in Mississippi and so was going to look there. looked at Birmingham, Dallas, 
um, Memphis and Nashville. And I think I sent out to either nine or 10 different places and got back every single interview uh, that I applied for. And I, but I did not rank every single one of those. So um, it, to me, residency was very similar to um, going through Rush for a sorority and having to rank your um, choices. And so, you know, not only are you looking at is the program a good fit for you, but you're they're also looking at are you a good fit for the program? And so um, where I landed was um, in Mississippi at the academic teaching hospital there, the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And um, it was great because I already had that rapport with all of the um, professors, but I had new experiences and a lot of new challenges, adding on management, those longitudinal research projects, um, different leadership components that you get in a residency. And so that was um, what, what I did. And then after that, moved to Nashville and yeah, actually created my position there at an independent pharmacy and then have had a lot of different roles um, until where I currently am now. So tell me specifically about the leadership roles that you alluded to maybe when you were making the actual application. So I also was in a fraternity in the Deep South in, in the SEC at the University of Florida, and we can still be friends even if our football teams are, are rivals. But what we, I guess the fraternity versus sorority was very different, where in the sorority you go and they kind of compile all of the data and then you do rankings and then there's bid day with mm -hmm. fraternities. They give a bid to probably twice the number that are going to make it through the process. And then, you know, you go from 50 in your pledge class to 25 in your pledge class where in sorority rush, if I remember right, they make those decisions ahead of time. They're very thoughtful in terms of, okay, let's let, these are the people that we want. These are the, the best fit. But did you include your undergraduate leadership with your uh, leadership in pharmacy school? Maybe speak a little bit to that. Yeah, I did. And so I went through the University of Mississippi's program, which was an early entry program. So I um, completed that in six years. So I certainly included my four years on the Oxford campus, which included two years of undergrad. And so um, I held... Uh, a position with the Associated Student Body and represented the School of Pharmacy uh, for a year. And so I definitely included that. I was in the Chancellor's Leadership class as a freshman. Um, I pursued, um, you know, different uh, other service opportunities. Um, I think Rotorax, which was a, a, through Rotary, um, was able to uh, attend the presidential debate. Um, because I had uh, enough kind of service and opportunity through just my undergraduate, like things that I was involved in at the university. Um, and then, you know, did other things like I, you know, looking at internships even. Uh, so I was technically in pharmacy school, but it wasn't associated with pharmacy was that I went and interned on Capitol Hill and interned for a senator. So, um, you know, looking for all of those different things, of um, how are you not only involved in leadership, 
um, and, you know, doing uh, volunteer things. Like maybe you help to organize something for um, the Heart Walk. Like, you know, the American Heart Association does a Heart Walk every year. And, I, and our sorority was involved in doing things like that. Or um, maybe you organized a philanthropy event. Um, and then in pharmacy school, I did uh, get involved early on in those uh, professional uh, organizations like APHA, um, the uh, student version, and um, did the uh, operation immunization. So um, that, of course, is a very hot topic for right now um, with all the emphasis on vaccines and pharmacist roles uh, with that. But yeah, those were some of the things things that I included. Um, and so you've got to start looking at uh, I'm sure that all of the students, you know, even just to get into pharmacy school, you've got to show leadership. So it's something that I hope that you didn't just stop when you got into pharmacy school, because it's so important to continue to seek those types of leadership um, opportunities, not only to help you win some of those coveted residency positions, but also to help you stand out in the job market. Um, you know, even if you're, you know, you don't want to go into management, you know, you want to be, uh, an ICU critical care pharmacist, it's still important when, um, you know, that, um, hospital system is looking at you versus another candidate. They want to know that you're going to take the initiative and like what makes you stand out. So, I hope that all the students are looking at some of those different things. Um, there are a lot of different boxes that you can check. Service, I mentioned. Um, teaching, maybe you're, you know, giving back as a student and helping, helping to um, facilitate uh, scholars days or different like visits. And, you know, that's something that you could kind of put down or, you know, hopefully you're already seeking research, um, opportunities, you know, showing that you've been involved in research is important. Not only do you get that as a resident, but you need to probably start showing that as a student. Um, and then just, you know, any ways that you're showing that you're, um, really, um, taking the initiative, showing leadership opportunities any in any clinical ways. Um, maybe you're, you know, getting extra certifications, like you're getting the diabetes certification and immunization and MTM and all of those things are important and show that you're um, pursuing those things. So the big thing that is a struggle, I think, for, you know, as you apply for residency is, is taking a large amount of work over a long period of time and putting it into a couple of paragraphs, which is what really uh, the cover letter asked for, the letter of intent asked for. And then even in some cases, when they say, you know, can you tell me about yourself? Now, you've written a book, How Pharmacists Lead, Answers from Women Who Are Leading, Succeeding, and Impacting Pharmacy. And you have taken some of pharmacy's most important leaders and put their accomplishments in three or four paragraphs. How did you take what might've been an interview that lasted 30 minutes, 40 minutes and get the essence of who they were through their brand um, and put that into writing? Because I think that's something that's really a struggle 
because we don't really have that many writing assignments that would be like that in school. Um, how did you kind of become the pharmacist writer who can take something that's very big and just take what's absolutely most important and put it into a couple paragraphs? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And thank you, Tony, for really helping to inspire the writing of the book. And uh, since you've done so many of uh, audio books and are really the guru for that. Um, but yes, I think that obviously communication skills and um, writing skills are very important. Uh, so much is done via email um, in this age. And yeah, like how do you decide what is the most important? And I think, you know, out of all of the different experiences, um, you know, maybe you could pull out the, the most important one from each of those buckets, service or clinical or research, and try to put that in and try to give examples. I think that, you know, when you're telling, tell me about yourself, um, it's really all about storytelling and how can you, um, how can you tell a story and give those great examples, um, so that whenever they ask you a question, then you can say, oh, well, um, when I was uh, a, a student doing operation immunization, I led in this way, and this is the impact that it had. Um, so I would say that, you know, it is really challenging. And to go back to the book, um, you know, a lot of those women featured have had really long careers. You know, they may have been practicing pharmacy for 10, 20, 30, maybe more years. Sure. And, um, you know, it is. But when you've got someone like a Lucinda Maine and they've, you know, achieved one of the very highest awards, like APHA's, like Gloria Nehemiah, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, award, then that's something that you would include. Um, but it is interesting to see what, what, they put in their bios. Um, and, you know, I obviously shared what I was going to um, write with every um, buddy that was included for their approval and um, got and was able to seek their input as well. But yeah, those are, you know, great little um, examples of people who have been in a variety of areas of pharmacy and, you know, whether it's functional me medicine, 340B, association leadership, um, working for a health plan, um, they've all had some type of uh, leadership track and um, have, you know, shown that through um, service in a lot of different ways. I wanted to dive into a couple specific pages of your book, 80 and 81, and I think when you're applying for residency, you, you have in your head that it is a completely fair process where no candidate has any advantage over the other uh, as they're applying. But when you actually dig into the data and look at the numbers, for example, there's a hospital that only has students from Auburn University, or you see that uh, a particular site only has students from three Michigan schools or something like that. And then you start to kind of dig in and see that there are definite preferences uh, with, you know, the, the sites. 
And in your book, you talk quite a bit about networking and advancement. And I think students think of networking as kind of a job that they have to do where it's it's really more of a kind of a natural thing where you're just going and being with people that you know have similar interests to you. How do you go about picking out of the 4,000 different spots that there are for residency, how do you go against, go to pick those places that might have a bias towards you rather than against you, where you're kind of going into something favorable? For example, I was not from the deep South and I thought of Florida as, I don't know what it was in my head, but I thought the University of Florida or Gainesville was more like Orlando, where it was truly part of the panhandle. It was truly the deep South. And and I, I culturally fit in a little bit better after I kind of understood it better. But it was kind of a culture shock as somebody from the Northeast going to the Deep South. And I guess, I guess I'm asking, how do you kind of have that self-reflection, self-evaluation of stopping that whole applying to places that have prestige and apply to those places where you're really going to be a part of the team. You're really going to fit in. It's people that have the same interests as you do. How did you kind of pick those places to have such a high, you know, match rate or interview rate? How did you pick the places where you just felt comfortable or knew that you would feel comfortable, I guess is my question. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think honestly, if I was looking back as a student, um, I, I wasn't as self-aware. And so I, I fell into that trap of, um, looking at a few places just for the prestige. And, um, you know, now that I'm looking back, I'm like, wow, you know, maybe I, maybe that didn't work out because it wasn't as good of a fit. Um, and so, um, because, you know, there are some programs that, have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder uh, because they kind of know, Oh, I work for such and such health system and everybody wants to apply here just because it's got like a, a big, you know, name recognition, but you know, the program might not be as, as good or you may not have as great of an experience as you would somewhere else. Um, and so I definitely fell into that trap as a student. So Hopefully, you know, you're shedding light on that. And now that I can reflect back, um, share that more personally. Um, But I would say as I have learned and matured, um, I think that that is more important than ever. And so, um, you know, when we were able to go and uh, go to conferences and actually meet people face to face, um, that was important. So, you know, you do have a few days residency showcase to be able to go and talk to all the different programs that are, that are there. I can only imagine what this year will look like with the virtual setup. Um, but you know, you do, you get, you know, those first impressions, um, you can even walk by a booth and kind of like, just get kind of a vibe from, um, from that. But of course, do your research on the front end and you're going to know, you know, narrow it down by region or narrow it down by specific program. If you're, you know, you know, you want to do ambulatory care and you want to stick at one place and have that inside track, because a lot of times programs are going to pick 
people that they're familiar with, as you mentioned, like, oh, this one is definitely going to have Auburn grads or definitely going to have Michigan grads. Well, um, if you want that PGY2, it's good to go ahead and have your foot in the door. Um, and so I think that the earlier on that you can make connections with people, um, the better, because then they're, they're going to know who you are. Um, now, it is a little hard to make those connections just blindly from like LinkedIn or, or, you know, if you don't have a chance to kind of bump into them at a conference or in person, especially if you're, you know, from Iowa and trying to meet somebody in Florida, you might not be at the same <laughs> sure. uh, FSHP or, um, you know, Florida APHA meeting, but um, is as much as you can, if there's maybe some, um, well-known, like for instance, um, Dr. Phil Ayers is a nationally recognized nutrition expert. He's, you know, been on the Aspen board and done guidelines and he was one of my professors. So if someone knows they want to do nutrition support, they should be looking at who has served on Aspen and kind of like looking at, Oh, well, where are they? And, you know, probably start kind of trying to maybe follow them on LinkedIn or different things. Now don't be stalkerish, but, um, you know, kind of doing that research is really important. Um, but yeah, obviously, um, just like in, in a sorority or fraternity, um, and probably what you were doing for pharmacy school is, is where do you feel at home? You know, do you feel at home with, you know, I, I've talked to, I'm an advisor for Belmont um, College of Pharmacy, and I love to ask students, like, why did you pick Belmont? And so many times I say, I really like the faculty. And the faculty are just, you know, one of the biggest assets for Belmont. And that's why a lot of people uh, pick that um, college from all over the country. Of course, Nashville is a great place to live, but, um, you know, I think the faculty or the, the preceptors, the people that you're meeting is just so important. Like, do you fit in with them or, um, or maybe not? And so that's something that should be top of mind when you're interviewing at places. In your, in your book, you, you talk a little bit about, um, gender roles. And, and one of them was that you said you found women are generally more reluctant to initiate lunch or coffee meetings. But I think you were the one that brought us together with the coffee meeting at APHA. <laughs> so was there some kind of change that happened for you as you took on more responsibility as a leader? Uh, have you made some of the changes that um, were maybe uncomfortable at first that are now more comfortable for you? Yeah. Well, I've always, well, I would say. You're the connector. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If you read the book, um, Malcolm Gladwell's um, Tipping Point, um, he talks all about connectors, mavens, and salesmen. And I love being a connector. And, you know, networking and, and relationship building is something that comes really naturally to me. Um, and so even though as a new grad, I was, was probably not as confident in, um, 
setting those kinds of things up with people who were more established in their careers and things as I kind of grew in that confidence um, as a, a pharmacist and professional and kind of had some things under my belt, um, then I've really just embraced that part of my um, personality and, you know, love that. And that's one of my favorite things uh, that I do love about podcasting is just being able to connect with people and share their stories. But um, yeah, I think that um, for women, um, it it sometimes is harder to do that um, or there maybe are are a little more reluctant. I I just see my husband, um, he will go for like drinks meetings or lunch meetings or coffee meetings. I mean, he would have multiple of these throughout the week. I mean, he does do business development and sales for his job, but it's so funny. And, and I don't know if it, it even becomes probably harder. And now that I'm a new mom, I think that it becomes even harder as women become moms because there's that added level of responsibility because, you know, you've also got your family priorities. Um, and you know, that'll probably come and go with seasons as you've got younger babies, it's probably a little harder than when they're a little more self-sufficient, but, um, yeah, I, you know, and women, um, are also going to be a little more reluctant and hesitant to humble brag, if you will, you know, they're not going to be, Oh, Oh yeah, I did this thing. And really it was a really an amazing accomplishment. And so, um, that's also something that I think that we see um, a little bit in terms of gender differences. Now, there are always going to be people that break the mold. And obviously, as I've kind of come into my own and um, within the first like two or three years out of pharmacy school, um, now I can go up and, you know, talk to anybody, whether they're the, you know, CEO of a pharmacy association all the way down to, you know, whomever. Um, I feel comfortable and Uh, confident talking to them and making those connections and creating fun events to uh, bring people together. So you, you do mention in the book, women are often more humble than men. And then the, the feeling of imposter syndrome. And I feel like as the father of three daughters uh, and, and wanting them to be confident and wanting them to be able, a lot of what, strengthens them is their competence in sports. And I'm going to shift a little bit towards soccer. And I know you were a soccer player. I am a soccer coach only because I have children (laughs) who play soccer. (laughs) And it's my third year now. So now they're in academy, which is the, I don't want to say it's the elite because anyone's allowed to be in, but they certainly take it a lot more seriously. And I just wanted to kind of share a little bit of a leadership story where just this last weekend, we were going to an out-of-state, uh, out-of-state competition, and we'd lost a bunch of people to illness, and they couldn't be on the team. And so my daughter had to switch teams, and my daughters have always played on the same team. For the last three years, there's never been a time where they haven't played on the same team unless they were guest playing or something like that. And what had happened when she went on this other team is that the team she was on went to the championships and we unfortunately didn't win. We played an amazing team who just, you know, really, really uh, did well and 
And as a coach, maybe I should have prepared them a little bit better on that side. But on the other hand, while she didn't get to go to that championship game, everybody was kind of astounded that here's this nine-year-old who didn't want other people to lose their chance to get to the championship. And then she ended up taking on that leadership role. And she's not putting it on her resume. She's not putting it on her CV. But there are so many times where I feel like someone has done that. But when you, if you were to ask her about it, she would actually minimize that. She would say, well, I really don't want to talk about that. But here we are applying to residencies and we need to maximize that. So where I might have a guy put that he was president in the first paragraph, I'm like, you can't put that in the first paragraph. You can't put, I'm the president. You know, it, it looks bad and they, they think that, you know, maybe you're not going to be coachable. Where I might see some of the young women who are applying are completely omitting the fact that they were president of a society. How do you do that humble brag in writing so that I, I, I guess I'm, I'm concerned. My, my big concern is this. I think they're expecting that someone is going to carefully look through their letter of intent or carefully look through their CV as much as their letter of intent, where my understanding is people only spend 15, 30 seconds on that CV to do the check boxes and they might miss it. How do you do that humble brag in writing, I guess, is, is what that question finally comes down to. Mm. Well, I think that's, that's a challenge. Um, I like that. And I think sports are so important. I think it teaches um, so many skills early on teamwork especially that's, you know, such an important skill in healthcare. And you can gain some of those um, leadership experiences that you can get to practice early on. Um, and you learn about losing, um, you know, yeah. because things, things are not always going to, you know, you're not always going to get the job or you're not always going to get the residency that you want. Um, but, you know, it teaches you a lot about um, perseverance and practice, you know, there's, you, you have a game every Saturday or, you know, a couple Saturdays a year, but you're practicing multiple times during the week so that you're ready for the game. And so I think there's position. Did you play just to kind of give reference? Yeah. Well, I was a forward and midfielder and played, um, all the way from, you know, the swarm league and did several years of select soccer, um, Probably could have played in college, but knew that I wanted to focus on. I was I was so I was an only child, and so um, that and from a small town, so that allowed me to be um, participate in, in a lot of different extracurriculars. Um, so I actually was head cheerleader and um, captain of our soccer team, and so those right there are, are two different leadership positions that my peers recognized early on, um, and I do reference those because I think it's important to show those. Those are more um, trait leadership, so th- you know, just different um, kind of characteristics that you exhibit, but now, of course, there's more of an emphasis on transformational leadership um, you know, inspiring others on your team and, um, lifting others up and kind of creating that type of, um, environment, not just because someone is like organized or excels or, or does, um, or, you know, maybe scores the most goals or is going to, 
Um, so I think that, that it is neat to see how leadership is changing a lot, um, in, uh, the 21st century and a lot of the skills that women have, um, they're good collaborators. They're great listeners. They're good team builders. Um, all of those are really important, um, in this, you know, 21st century of leadership. So I think it is important for women to share those. And to go back to your question on how do you um, bring those out? Um, again, you've got to, you only have so much space. So you've got to kind of pick out the most important, but try to pick ones that are unique. Or, you know, I think that um, being an Eagle Scout, that is a really oh, yeah. hard, hard accomplishment. Um, not everybody can go all the way through Boy Scouts and become an Eagle. If you're an Eagle Scout, you better put that on there because that show and, and what's also really neat is, um, is, you know, if you're able to put those types of unique experiences, like maybe, maybe you played soccer in college and you were in pharmacy school, man, time management, um, right there. So I think that, People like to read a, a letter of intent and pull out something because they're going to ask you about it in an interview. Like, oh, my brother was an Eagle Scout. Tell me, what was your Eagle Scout project? And then that gives you an opportunity to, to share about that. Or um, if you write, you know, you were a college athlete, then that is a great segue for you to share about how your time management skills um, and how you'll be able to manage um, all of the different activities and requirements, uh, that are required of a resident. Yeah. I, I love that. I, I could see you as a center mid. And for those of you that, that don't play soccer, the center mid has the most passing options and would connect to the most people. So I could, I could totally see <laughs> that your, your soccer fits to the, to, to, you know, that best personality. And, and I guess the, the last question I would ask to kind of keep this around the 30 minute mark is, so in soccer, there's the goal score and, and, you know, as you go, especially in the younger levels, the one metric that the parents always look at is, you know, did the kid score a goal and all of that? And, yeah. and mm-hmm. two of our defenders, my daughter's one of them. And then another one we have both scored a single goal during the season. And that was mm-hmm. enough for them. They're like, okay, I did it. I'm done with that. That was yeah. neat. Um, I felt good, but they really love being defenders, and and yeah. they're just as uncomfortable in the goal scoring as someone who says, "Look, I'm a striker. I want to attack. It it doesn't make sense for me to sit back there and and well, as a defender, you really shouldn't sit back there. You should drive up and back. But but anyway, to to get to the point, so much I think of students' pressure is an expectation that they should be like someone when really they're not really being the best of themselves. And I just remember during that, the the coach that on the other team was like, look, I need somebody that can score goals, but I also need a goalie. <laughs> so totally. I have a very specific need. How as an applicant, did you kind of maybe look at, or how do you look at what, what is this residency really asking for? Are they asking for somebody that has community experience, ambulatory care experience, specific hospital experience? I think we always focus too much on, I want to show them all the things that I've done and put as many things that I've done rather than actually just listen by reading, but to say, hey, what does this, what is this 
position really about? What position do they really need? Do they really need someone that's a defender, a midfielder who's going to connect to other players, or do they need someone who's an attacker or a goalie? I think it's easier with athletics to to kind of see it. But how do you, as this last question, really break down what it is that a residency site is looking for and asking for in an applicant? Make sure you read the job description and you see what's important to them. So, you know, are they, um, I mean, it will tell you right there and eat and even, uh, make sure that, um, a lot of your experiences hit on some of those key phrases in the job description. And that goes even after residency, because so many times now, um, it's not going to be a person that is reading every single resume or, or letter of intent. So you've got to think about how you've worded your CV or how you've worded your letter of intent and make sure that it, it includes some of that language. So, um, you know, if they're looking for a community pharmacist that, you know, something about patient counseling is important, right. And, and, uh, community pharmacy. Well, you know, for example, um, you know, just looking back from my background, if that was an area that, if that was a residency I was pursuing, well, then I'm going to highlight that I was the first runner up for the APHA patient counseling competition. Boom. All right. Check that box. So I think it's really important to look at, um, what they are looking for and to make sure that you're see. and if it, and quite honestly, if your CV or your experience doesn't fit what they're looking for, then maybe you need to, to, you know, widen your scope or look at different opportunities. Hillary, thank you so much for sharing your time. I know that you're a now relatively new mom, a new author, uh, doing it all. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time to help these uh, future residents out. Well, thank you, Tony. And I think you give such great insight and advice. Um, it, your services are so valuable for helping them to navigate the pharmacy residency process and to feel confident as they're going in in this very competitive market. So thank you for letting me be a guest on your show. Appreciate it. If you're interested in learning more about residencies, be sure to check out Tony's podcast called Pharmacy Residency Podcast. And if you want another resource, I do have a boot camp called the Residency Boot Camp available at residencybootcamp.teachable.com available for free to help you get ready for the pharmacy residency process. For more about pharmacists in leadership, be sure to check out my new book now available as an ebook and paperback on Amazon. Go over to Amazon and search for How Pharmacists Lead, answers from women who are leading, succeeding, and impacting pharmacy, and I hope you check it out. And if you liked this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps us to get in front of more pharmacists and others interested in the pharmacy industry. We really appreciate your support in sharing this content. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk to Your Pharmacist, produced by the Pharmacy Advisory Group. If you liked this episode, let us know by subscribing to the podcast, 
rating and reviewing it. Share it with friends. And if you want to be a guest or know a pharmacist leader who has a great story to tell, connect with me, Hillary Blackburn, on LinkedIn and check out our Facebook page, Pharmacy Advisory Group, for updates on new podcasts. Thanks for listening. 